Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. I stepped up to her more closely to view her. Our show is There Are No Accidents. The business of blaming the worker. Saying young man, stand off me and do not come near me. I work for my living and think it no shame. Our opening song is Factory Girl, performed by Rhiannon Giddens, in which Giddens moves from the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York, 1911 to a 2013 garment factory building collapse in Bangladesh, killing over 1,000. In the U.S., death and injury on the job are considered to be a condition of doing business, a necessary evil that is often said to come about because of operator error. Everyone makes mistakes, after all. Why should an employer or corporation bear the burden of what is surely just a fact of human nature? To make this assumption is to assert that the worker has been properly trained for the specific job being done, that the worker has been given the proper clothing and protective gear, that the workplace itself has been made as safe as possible and all machinery is in safe working order. It's to assume the best of the employer, and at the same time, the worst of the employee, and to accept that to work at a place like Tyson Foods is to know and expect you might be the one employee a month to lose a body part. Hey, you chose to work there. That's on you. But that reality is status quo in an America where 13 of us die on the job every day. And that's a number based on employer data, which is less than complete or reliable. Joining us today is Jonathan Carmel, author of Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace, published by Cornell University Press. Karma has practiced labor and employment law in Chicago for 35 years, representing unions and their employee benefit funds. A fellow of the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers, he's recently become the co-chair of the American Bar Association's Occupational Safety and Health Committee. Today we explore the antagonism of business organizations against the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, the agency established under the Occupational Safety and Health Act which President Richard Nixon signed into law on December 29, 1970. Perhaps it's no surprise that the regulated community has constantly been working to undermine and underfund the work that OSHA does. It seems businesses prefer the days of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire of 1911, where 146 workers died, mostly women and girls, because the factory owners locked exit doors during work hours to restrict employee breaks. If you're on a break or using the bathroom, you're taking money out of the master's um, employer's pocket. And it seems, just as in 1911, we should all be asking still, is going to work a grave mistake? We begin with Jonathan Carmel's assertion that accident is the wrong word to use for workplace injury and death, as it shifts responsibility onto the worker's back. A thousand young dark in the sun and now there are no accidents the business of blaming the worker on interchange on wfhb if you don't mind let's begin at the end 
of your book, uh, your new book, Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace. Um, at the end, you ask the question, are there really any accidents? Well, are there? When I started writing the book, I used the word accident describing the injuries and deaths that occurred to people that I wrote about in the book. And I changed that when I did my final editing because it occurred to me that these weren't accidents. Uh, accidents are something that are uh, by chance, they're unforeseen, they're unpredictable. And none of these deaths and injuries that I write about, and there were many more than that I interviewed that I didn't get into the book, and I can read its story almost every day, unfortunately. These are not accidents. These are totally predictable. Uh, they're not by chance. And so what I write about at the end of the book is one of the things we need to do in addressing this problem of workplace uh, injuries and deaths is to stop, change the narrative from using the word accident to an incident. I mean, that's how that's actually how OSHA describes it in its injury forms, reporting forms. Accidents blame the worker, mm. and they, and they don't hold uh, the employer accountable in the narrative for these predictable and likely to occur injuries and deaths to workers. Hmm. So, uh, I, is there even a stronger word than incident? That's kind of a, it's such a companion word or one that might slide over the consciousness as well. Um, obviously, something happened, right? Right, right. It's, it's a tough, uh, there, there isn't a single word that can describe what happens to workers and what happens to workers every day. An incident, I agree, sounds pretty antiseptic and benign. And that's why I actually, one of the reasons I wrote the stories that I wrote in the book uh, about the interviews, uh, from the interviews with the injured workers or the surviving family members of workers who were killed, because because there isn't a single word that you that you can use to describe what's happened to them. Mm. And, and the stories, I, I hope, are compelling enough to readers to say, this is outrageous. We need to do something about it. Yeah, they, they certainly are. And it's, uh, you know, as, as you were talking, as I was thinking about it earlier, the idea of, uh, of the happenstance of accident, right? As you say, kind of sticks you in that place where you think, well, what, what mistake did you make? You know, that you should have avoided um, imagining you could not um, have this happen to you, right? How could you have worn tighter clothing that day or somebody else wouldn't have, you know, changed the setting on a machine that you should have been aware of, things of that nature? That's right. So a worker who isn't properly trained to do their job safely, that's not the worker's fault mm. and that's not an accident when they get injured or they get killed. That's a likely outcome. Hmm. of a lack of training is this worker is going to injure or kill themselves or injure or kill another worker. Uh, so it's not a big leap from lack of training to an injury or a death. Right, right, that's, right. That's not an accident. Right. Well, that's good. I think that's a great, a great way to frame it. The book is, is full of those instances. And as you say, you, you gave us, you give us lots of statistics, but, uh, you know, the meat or the core of the book tries to put, uh, flesh on those statistics, tries to make them realities that, as you say, happen daily. I think at the end, again, in this, uh, accidents chapter, are there really any accidents? You point to the fact that Tyson Foods reported something like, I don't know how many amputees in one year, 46 workers in Arkansas suffered amputations at work in fiscal year 2015. Yikes. That's right. So, so and the number of deaths that are occurring, and, and keep in mind uh, that these are just the numbers that I report in the book. Mm -hmm. 
are the government statistics. These aren't made-up numbers that you know, I'm picking out of right. whole cloth, but the government statistics. Unfortunately, uh, these are only the reported numbers, and there is a lot of underreporting mm-hmm. that goes on. And so the true numbers, and there's been studies to estimate what the true numbers are, are much higher than the reported numbers. Right, right. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Jonathan Carmel, a labor lawyer in Chicago and author of Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace, in which he details what is status quo when you go to work, the very real and avoidable chance that you'll be injured or even killed, even if you work in the local grocery store. When we talk about this thing, uh, this in particular with statistics, right? So generally, uh, all things that uh, seem to be terrible that happen to us are underreported as a matter of course, it seems like. So rape statistics are drastically low, and then we have to extrapolate and guess what the actual number is. Why why are so many things like this underreported? In in workplace injuries and deaths, uh, especially injuries, there's... uh, there's a lot of underreporting that goes on. For example, uh, I think the most pernicious reason why underreporting uh, occurs for injuries is that many employers, uh, many, many employers drug test workers after an, a, a workplace uh, incident hmm. uh, where someone gets injured, regardless of whether the employee has, and w- w- where there's no evidence that the employee was under the influence of, of drugs or even alcohol at the time of the uh, incident that injured or uh, him or herself. Uh, so drug testing is a, is a deliberate um, disincentive, if you will, that employers put in place to keep workers from reporting. Mm. Uh, And that's just one example. That's one example. The other example is there's uh, peer pressure. You walk into a, it's common to walk into a a plant uh, or through a construction gate and there's big signs that say, um, we are now 100 days accident free Mm -hmm. or 101 days accident free. And employers often... uh, put in place certain seemingly trivial incentives to workers remain, quote, accident-free, including, you know, pizza parties, mm-hmm. and maybe they'll get some kind of a some kind of a minor financial bonus. And so no worker wants to spoil that accident-free um, number or record, even though it's not accurate mm-hmm. because of peer pressure. They don't want to be the one who, who, who spoils the pizza party. And, you know, I'm not being... Joking about the pizza party. That's there, not a joke, eh? There, uh, there are incentives <laughs> like that, and, and so. Oh my so, gosh! Well, so. Mm. That just reminded me of my kids' uh, high school Spanish class, right? You all get a certain grade, or you do your homework, we'll have a party. That's right. That's and, right. That's embarrassing. So OSHA has actually, um, there, there's been, you know, uh, worker safety, health and safety advocates have have pushed back against these kinds of employer programs. Mm-hmm. And OSHA has uh, more or less uh, approved them under the Trump administration. They said, well, they're okay. Mm. And drug testing is okay. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. The drug testing, sure, you're going to get all scared about that too. And, that's uh, right. and then also, who knows what actually happens to that drug testing material <laughs> after that's the fact. Right. Let's, let's go to your opening. You, you begin really with the uh, 1911 Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Why do you start there? 
I think that that was the, no pun intended, and I actually call it the, the, the spark that lit the industrial uh, change, changes in industrial uh, health and safety laws. Hmm. When 146 workers were burned to death or jumped to their death in about 15 minutes' time when this uh, uh, shirtwaist factory uh, just blew up in flames, uh, it caused incredible outrage around the country, but particularly in New York mm -hmm. or in Manhattan where it occurred. And that, unfortunately, or fortu unfortunately is, is often the impetus for changes, health and safety, particularly in health and safety. Big incidents like this in coal mines, uh, they, they have a famous you know, saying in the coal industry uh, that uh, coal safety standards come into place when a bunch of miners die. Mm-hmm. So it takes uh, it takes an awful, awful incident and, and sometimes a lot of deaths before our politicians are pushed by public outrage to do something about this. Hmm. And so um, the shirt triangle fire was was the first major uh, incident of this type. There were, prior to this, there were a lot of lots of lots of. Uh, uh, individual or you know a few workers would get killed particularly in the railroad industry mm. in the late 1800s and early 1900s it was a very 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 dangerous industry uh and also down in the coal mines but uh apart from those two industries nobody had given much thought to health and safety standards for workers in these new factories that were there were, you know these were the modern factory uh in 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 our country these garment factories in New York and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. and, and that was the spark that led to changes and, and health, health uh, and safety laws uh, being enacted up in Albany, New mm. York, and, and health and safety commissions and standards, you know, started thinking about standards. And, and that was really big. Locked inside the factory 13 hours a day. The foreman's bent to break our backs, our uncle takes our pay. Sewing rolls of velvet clothes for uptown girls to wear. Our tenement slums have become a city of despair. It's time for a break. This is Triangle Factory Fire by Meisner and Smith, off of the 2004 album Halfway Home. More with Jonathan Carmel on the status quo reality of dangerous workplaces when Interchange returns. Reflections in the window show the ragged clothes I wore. Hope is Objects of our labor all around us, they were hung. The owners never trusted us, these immigrants, they swore. We'll steal any chance to get, that's why we locked the doors. Hope is broken, worries in my soul. One more day, one more dollar in the heart. Flames broke out below us and soon they blocked the doors. Fire escapes bolted shut on every single floor Kept my wits 
it's about me and the good Lord by my side But I still believe that luck's the only reason I'm alive Though 150 women died up in them flames Owners felt in the courts agreed Welcome back to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm My guest is Jonathan Carmel, labor lawyer and author of Dying to Work We begin with the arguments businesses have always been making in order to avoid being regulated Regulations are job killers Of course, the truth is that an unregulated workplace kills workers. Then we look at an OSHA that desperately needs updating and support. Mr. Corporation, sitting 80 stories high, got a briefcase full of dollar bills, sleeps a bit at night. Well, it was interesting to just do a brief bit of history research there. One, as you say, 146 garment workers uh, either died from fire or smoke inhalation or falling or jumping to their desk. 123 women, 23 men, uh, the youngest being 14-year-olds, 14-year-old uh, girls. Um, and but but what was interesting about the kind of uh, you know law and regulation talk, you know, it, was, it had happened before that, right? There's the you mentioned the the Pittsburgh uh, survey, 1907 and 1908, and I think in in some I read somewhere that. Um, that the day after that the this triangle shirtwaist factory fire happened the day after the court overturned a law um that was meant to actually uh study workplace accidents and uh, introduce new legislation um legislative reforms that went into effect in 1910 were overturned in New York the day um the day before this fire so it's, so there are you know obviously things were happening they were uh people like uh, Crystal Eastman uh sister to Max Eastman who some people might know had done research with this Pittsburgh survey as well and I think even uh, WEB Du Bois had been doing some research in in African American communities on workplace safety as well um so the irony is terrible and it features that arc of reform that you mentioned, preventable tragedy, public outrage, and legislative salve. Salve being uh, normally a good thing, I think, but in this case, it's one of those things in which we think too little is done, uh, even as it attempts to, I guess, um, make the public feel better about things. Well, that's what happened then, and, and uh, things don't change all that much. Mm-hmm. In the book, I talk uh, a little bit about the the, the legislative tug of war that was going on after the uh, fire and uh, particularly uh, business and the industry's response to these new commissions and workplace standards and, and, and laws. Uh, in New York, the lobbyists and politicians back then were using the rhetoric of that these laws and regulations are job killers. Mm-hmm. And, and that this is going to cause businesses to flee New York and go who knows where to Alabama or mm-hmm. or to Mexico. Who knows where they were threatening to go? And obviously, New York has done pretty well uh, since the fire, you know, in terms of business. <laughs> uh, but it's the same rhetoric we hear today. Yeah. And it's the same legislative inaction or action that we see today. Mm-hmm. And again, today, it, it takes these calamities, disasters to get anybody awoke mm. and get anybody to put any pressure on, on politicians who are becoming, as we know, more and more and more insulated from any kind of public pressure because they're being insulated by uh, millions and millions of dollars mm-hmm. of, uh, of uh, 
industry money. Yeah, so so that's you know part of the book is to try to find a way through a lot of that and to put in uh, into our minds ways in which we might uh, we might affect reforms locally as well as at the state level too. And we'll get to those uh, as we as we move on. Also, one of the the key key things that happen in labor. Um, I guess labor workplace reform is the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970. We're jumping pretty far ahead here, but it's the the major legislation, right? That's right. So the Shirtwaist Fire was in 1911, and OSHA was signed into law by no less than Richard Nixon, our last 19- liberal, yeah, our last liberal yeah. president. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. In 1970, and OSHA is going to celebrate next year its 50th year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the first piece of comprehensive national legislation outside of the mining industry uh, and, and the railroad industry uh, had some of their own commitments in, in legislation. But it, it was a piece of legislation that was covering the majority of workers in America. And at the time, it was a great piece of legislation. And, and, and OSHA has the, the, the act and the agency have caused worker deaths to decline. There's no doubt about that. Mm, something like 66%, I think you're right. Yeah, I think early on, I mean, OSHA was very effective in enacting regulations that have reduced the number of workplace deaths. Mm-hmm. But uh, today, 50 years, almost 50 years later, the workplace in America, the workplaces in America are quite different than they were 50 years ago. And the types of hazards and that are in workplaces are much different than they were 50 years ago. Mm. And OSHA hasn't really come into the new age, you know, the 21st century, and there's been lots of attempts at reform legislation that have gone nowhere. In fact, this April, there's a couple of weeks during Workers' Memorial Day, uh, I believe the OSHA Reform Act will be rolled out once again by some Democratic senator, usually, on Workers' Memorial Day, and It'll go nowhere. Mm-hmm. And certainly not in Mitch McConnell's Senate. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Jonathan Carmel, a labor lawyer in Chicago and author of Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace, in which he details what is status quo when you go to work, the very real and avoidable chance that you'll be injured or even killed, even if you work in the local grocery store. What we see throughout is a familiar cast of, um, you know, evil villains who twirl their mustaches. Um, Of course, not in the cartoonish, funny way. (laughs) So, you know, we have uh, the same kinds of people making these claims against worker safety. Uh, As you say, uh, you know, if if you if you if you cost the company money, they're going to move, which they do. (laughs) They actually do move. So it is part of the uh, extortion that's that's run against workers by companies by corporations but uh the the familiar faces that we've come to, to come to know and love here in this country the Koch brothers in particular who funded the Cato Institute and the Mercatus Foundation there at uh, George Mason University doing the same kind of things and funding all sorts of things to show how how costly and useless or not necessary worker safety regulations are i think you you note that Cato publishes a journal called regulation 
and features articles with titles like Abolish OSHA. What arguments are, are they making? You know, what arguments are business people expecting the rest of us to buy that there's no reason to have these kinds of regulations? They're too costly and they don't do anything? So just backing up before I get to their argument, uh, as you know, uh, we have had an anti-regulatory fever in this country mm-hmm. that has demonized regulations. Uh, most recently now, we've been caught by this fever since uh, since the Ronald Reagan administration, and we've had it in various iterations before that. But I think the past more than 30 years now, that's been really uh, captured um, more than it ever has in our history. So we, we have this narrative of anti-regulatory uh, uh language out there about how regulations are jobs killers and they're bad for the economy and bad for jobs and bad for workers and it's completely nonsense so the anti-regulation crowd uh featured at mercatus and the cato institute uh they they claim among other things but prominently they claim that the the marketplace the market free market that we all you know are are spent you know uh, uh, fed to believe will take care of all of our uh, economic, uh, ills, uh, will, will cure, uh, the problem here. In other words, the market demand for workers will, will incentivize, uh, uh, employers to keep their workplaces safe and healthy because workers will not work in an unsafe work. And if they choose to work in an unsafe workplace, they will demand a higher wage premium to work there. Mm. And that's what these anti-regulatory free market blowhards, excuse me, don't <laughs> believe me. That's don't what do. they... <laughs> that's that's the that's the the nonsense that they are uh, pushing, yeah. and it's nonsense for two reasons. Mm-hmm. One is that uh, workers, if they were going to demand a premium for an unsafe workplace, first have to know have information that the workplace that they're applying to has uh, is unsafe, right. and a worker just doesn't have that information. Uh, when they go in to apply for a job in the HR office at some factory, they, you know, what do you think they're going to ask the HR manager or somebody? Say, Give me your work, your 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 safety uh, record. A hundred days, uh, no evidence. no accidents with a hundred uh, in a hundred days. Right. right. I want to know all the hazardous <laughs> conditions here because you know, if I if I do take your job, your lousy job, <laughs> I'm going to demand you know ten dollars more an hour. I mean, it's a completely preposterous yes argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't have the uh, information and then they don't have the bargaining power if they had the information to demand uh, a, a higher wage bill. it's time for another break this is holding your own by sunvolt off their new album union when we return to our discussion with john carmel we look at two incidents an amputation and a death that happened in kroger stores in indiana stay with us with your You were born 
Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is There Are No Accidents, The Business of Blaming the Worker, with labor lawyer and author John Carmel, whose recent book is Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace, published by Cornell University Press. In this segment, we look at two incidents that take place in Indiana Kroger stores in order to make the point that any workplace can be very dangerous. One of the things that's uh, clear uh, in in workplace safety, at least, um, and when you talk about having knowledge that things are dangerous, it's pretty easy. When we think about dangerous jobs, what what pops into everybody's head, right? We talk. You talked about coal miners, and uh, clearly, there's a whole television uh, bonanza now about dangerous jobs. But um, what is most interesting here is how quotidian the danger is, right? How it's it's a commonplace that workplaces are unsafe in America, in the United States. And so let's let's turn to some of that here. I want to go ahead and go right into the two incidences at Kroger, or different Kroger's in Indiana. Um, here in Bloomington, we've got five Kroger's um, within spitting distance, just kind of around the compass of the, of the town and in the center as well. So let's look at Kroger. You've got two incidences uh, in, in grocery stores. Um, the first one is Hannah Phillips, and that was in Wabash, Indiana. That's right. And let me uh, preface this, uh, if I may, uh, sure. that uh, I wasn't intentionally picking on Kroger. Kroger provides good jobs mm-hmm. in that industry, and uh, I'm not uh, was and I think and I and I know that the issues that uh, are were that that cause deaths and the injury that I talk about mm-hmm. these two grocery store employees occur at many other um, sure like, uh, yeah I will go ahead and and give that uh, you know proviso as well simply because I was having a conversation with my wife earlier before I came over here and telling her about these incidents and she said well uh, it's it doesn't it's not that it's Kroger right. And I said, no, it's not that Kroger's the yeah. evil empire here necessarily, right? No. Uh, any grocery store, anywhere there's a forklift, anywhere there's undertrained uh, individuals, anywhere that this kind of activity happens, there are, uh, uh, I almost said accidents, there are yeah. these workplace incidents. So I, I, I am talking about Kroger because it's local. I'm talking about Kroger because it's a giant corporation. And really, these are the issues. These are our workplaces. These are the places that manage our workplaces and they're protected by the law not the workers. So Kroger, replace with any other grocery store name you want or replace with Walmart or Macy's or anything else. Yeah. So the point was that I wanted to write about different industries that aren't coal miners and coal industries or offshore oil workers mm-hmm. uh, and, and try and push out the idea that literally every workplace is hazardous, including the ones that we come into contact with every day or send our kids as, as I was sent to go work in a grocery store in mm-hmm. Chicago with a young person. These are dangerous workplaces. So um, Hannah Phillips uh, was a young, uh, I believe she started working at the grocery store at Kroger at, at about age 16 while she was in high school. And she has a very interesting life story uh, that I tell in the book, um, kind of a, a really difficult uh, early start to her. You know, she was in a, um, in, in a, basically an orphanage uh, for a while, um, although she wasn't a complete orphan. Um, so she worked at, at Kroger, and she got promoted. 
Like as a teenager, you said she like had as a teenager, yeah, like a work work shared a work study job at high school, and so she she really started out life almost as a laborer. She did what I did when I was fifteen and Mm -hmm. sixteen. I worked in a grocery store, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um, as many kids do. Mm -hmm. And Hannah was good hard worker. She did her homework, went to Kroger to work at night or or during the days when she was off uh, from school, and they promoted her into the work in the meat department and. Hannah is a very a petite, very pretty, petite young girl at the time I met her. Uh, now she's a, a mother of two beautiful kids, and that's a great ending to her story, not an ending, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. update to her story. But she got promoted to work in um, the meat department, and I describe her physically because they gave her a one of these white lab coats or, or coats that meat cutters wear so they don't get the blood and gristle all over their uh uh, civilian clothes, and there wasn't one that fit Hannah properly. She was tiny, and so they had to roll up the sleeves of this big coat that draped over her. In any event, one night she was told, you know, part of her job duty was to the meat department closed, and they were closing up the store for the night, clean the department, clean the equipment, the grinders and saws and those dangerous pieces of equipment back there. And she did as she was instructed, and um, the equipment is supposed to be locked out, meaning the power source is supposed to be off. And um, she was cleaning a meat grinder, and she noticed a piece of gristle down the throat of the meat grinder, and she couldn't. She reached in her hand with her hand to pull it out, and the power source appeared to be turned off, but the safety switch was overridden uh, by someone they still don't know who today, uh, and it shouldn't have been able to have been overridden. You're supposed to have a safety on that safety switch. You can't mm. override these, but someone did. And um, the uh, grinder caught her uh, sleeve of her jacket, pulled in her arm. She pulled it back out a couple seconds later, and her and her arm was missing up to her elbow. Mm. Uh, just in an instant, she lost her, uh, her arm. And she um, took off her coat, wrapped it in like a tourniquet around her stump, walked to the front of the store, calmly asked him to call an ambulance. She was probably in shock. Mm-hmm. And uh, she sat down and waited for the ambulance to come. And it was a horrific story. And uh, for that injury, she was paid by the state of Indiana Workers' Compensation System $160 a week for a while, not forever. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Indiana has one of the lowest workers' compensation benefit system in the country. If you're an injured worker in Indiana, uh, good luck. Uh, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> no, it's, that's it's, okay. It's, it's terrible. It's a terrible system for work. Well, you do, uh, um, yeah, I'll, let me quickly read what you wrote here and get it in there. You do say uh, uh, these include the state's low corporate tax rate, its right to work law, its regulatory freedom, and the fact that it actually boasts the second lowest workers' compensation rates in the country. That's how they attract business here. That's right. They, uh, If you go on their economic development, the, the state's economic development website, particularly when Governor Pence was governor, mm-hmm. uh, and it hasn't changed. They boast, like you said, and I write about on its first page of its website, that we are business friendly. We're open for business in Indiana. Come here, and our workers' compensation costs for employers are really low. So if they're really low for employers, the benefits for the workers in Indiana are really low. Mm-hmm. And so that's not good for workers, maybe good for businesses, Indiana. Mm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Jonathan Carmel, a labor lawyer in Chicago and author of Dying to Work. 
Death and Injury in the American Workplace, in which he details what is status quo when you go to work, the very real and avoidable chance that you'll be injured or even killed, even if you work in the local grocery store. Hannah, as you say, was uh, is uh, an amazing. It's an amazing story because she's so upbeat throughout. Uh, even uh, upbeat about her her loss. You know uh, how how it's you know she's been able to do what she's been able to do. She's gone forward. She's she certainly seems like quite an impressive individual as well. She is. She is, and she um, like I said, she now has um, two beautiful young children and has moved on with her life. In a very. Uh, uh, productive way. Before before we go into workman's comp or workers' compensation, sorry, I didn't mean to be sexist or uh, uh, like a 50s throwback there, but um, let's let's go ahead and and talk a little bit about Lori Keene, and then we can we can sort of group group all that uh, in terms of the how 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 workers are taken care of after the fact. So Lori Keene was a, a worker also in a Kroger store. This one in, in Franklin, Indiana. Indiana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she she had worked there for a number of years, uh, and she was assigned uh, one day to go into the back room of this grocery store, which you walk into any grocery store or or one of these big box stores in the back room. You can be in any of these places, and they look the same. They're dark, narrow places with a lot of activity and and products stacked up and pallets almost to the ceiling. And Lori was directed to take a forklift and move pallets of bottled water, shrink-wrapped pallets of bottled water, and move them to some other area in the back room. Uh, the problem was Lori wasn't trained on how to move pallets. It's not as simple as putting the forks of a forklift under the bottom pallet and lifting them up and moving them because this is a very unstable um, you know, set of pe- you know, product. Right. And you can't stack it too high and move too many at once. But she was never trained on how to do it. And I'm terribly unfortunate for Lori was she attempted to move too many of them, and the and the forklift and the stacks of uh, uh, pallets of water became unstable, and they collapsed on her, crushed her to death. Hmm. Now that was uh, one of the things you point out is that um, um, she was uh, plausibly. I assume she was trained to run the forklift, but not how to do things with the forklift. Perhaps. Yeah, she knew how to operate mm-hmm. you know back and forth up and down with the forks but she wasn't trained on this on how to safely product on the mm-hmm. forklift so i want to i want to use this example actually to talk about the way someone would uh, blame her for this right you know i don't think you say this in the book in particular but as i was reading the account uh she gets off the forklift and appears uh, in uh, in the in the video to try to be shifting the weight of the pallets on the forklift. And, um, and that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that's ridiculous about the story is that one, you say in the book too, she must have known she couldn't have moved, you know, 4,000 pounds of, of, of water uh, by pushing it. Uh, but it's at that point when the kind of everything goes awry and, and things kind of tumble, right? That's right. And there was a in-store video of, of her trying to move this and adjust it and of the pallets falling on her and crushing her to death. This is all on video. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking at this, you you know, you know, this is the Monday morning quarterback. You can look at it mm-hmm. and say, well, doesn't she know that this was unstable? Doesn't she? Didn't she know? Didn't she know it was her fault? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She should have been trained. Mm-hmm. She had mm-hmm. no training and in and, and how to do this. Uh, 
And unless you've moved this product before and seen how unstable it was, which she apparently had never done, you don't know that it could tip over and crush you to death. Right. And um, Indiana, Indiana State OSHA, IOSHA, came in and cited Kroger for safety violations, particularly for not training uh, Lori Keene, and uh, fined Kroger. Yeah, let's talk about that. $8,000. right, right. Right. And that's uh, that and that was reduced after the the company lawyers or whatever uh, you know said they would not pay and if he challenged these right. particular fines, right? Which is a matter of course. This is part of the issue too, right? Is one uh you're not damaging Kroger by any right. of these fines and they're going to try to deny paying any of them anyway. That that's the common uh response to uh many many OSHA citations and fines and the fines uh that's part of the OSHA reform are so ridiculously uh insignificant mm-hmm. that they don't they don't uh they're not a deterrent to any employer practically any employer in this country mm-hmm. the the average fine for a worker's death under OSHA is $5000 mm. that's not enough to pay for a funeral and again keep in mind that the money that is eventually paid doesn't go to the worker or their family. It goes to the United States Treasury. Mm. So the workers never see $5,000 to possibly pay for their funeral. Um, and these fines, as small as they are, are often uh, challenged uh, through the uh, OSHA administrative system and, and reduced by anywhere between a third and a half. Mm. So is so. what's the fine supposed to fund then? Is it supposed to fund OSHA itself if you actually, if that, if that money goes back to the <laughs> tre- treasury? What's, what's the fine supposed to be paying for? The fine pays for the operations of the government. Mm. Uh, it goes back to the United States Treasury. Just I don't a, believe it goes to an OSHA. No specific uh, fund. Specific yet. fund. Oh. It's time for our final break. This is Industrial Disease by Dire Straits off of the 1982 album Love Over Gold. When we come back, how workers' compensation protects your employer far more than you. Stay with us. Now morning lights are flashing down the quality control. Somebody threw a spanner, they threw him in the hole. There's rumors in the Logan Bay and anger in the town. Somebody blew the whistle and the walls came down. It's a meeting in the ball. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. For our final segment of There Are No Accidents with union and labor lawyer Jonathan Carmel, we turn to the grand bargain of worker compensation laws. Employers cover medical expenses and partial wage replacement, and in return, 
they're granted immunity from lawsuits and civil liability for injuries to their employees. I wonder which party has been served best by this so-called bargain. And finally, we turn to the category of the independent contractor. Who's responsible for protecting that labor form? No one, it seems. Dr. Parkinson declared, I'm not surprised to see you here. You've got smokers caught from smoking, brewers drip from drinking beer. I don't know how you came to get the Betty Davis ease, but worst of all, young man, you've got a nostril disease. He wrote me a prescription, he said, you are depressed. I'm glad you came to see me to get this off your chest. Well, that's one of the things that you point out, too, is that in some ways, you know, people are left to their own uh, ability to sue outside the work, uh, the work relationship, in a sense, because uh, in the work workers compensation space, you you can't actually sue your employer. Is that right? That's right. So uh, at the beginning of the last century, there was a deal of grand bargain struck, I call it in the book, Mm -hmm. between labor and 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 employers that um, there would be a workers' compensation system set up in this country, uh, which would compensate in a non-litigious way uh, workers for their wage losses, medical benefits, and if they are permanently or partially disabled, for those benefits as well, in exchange for workers being prevented, legally prevented, barred from suing directly their employer for their personal injuries and economic losses. Prior to workers' compensation, that's what would happen. They would go into court and, 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 and try their case in front of a jury, and the jury would award whatever the jury decided they would award. And uh, businesses said that we don't want to be hauled into court anymore. We, we get it. We'll, we'll create this workers' compensation system, and we'll pay for your wage losses, your medical benefits, etc. That was the grand bargain. And that bargain is in tatters now. And in its place, we have uh, literally 50 workers' compensation uh, regimes, systems in place in each state. Indiana, we talked about, is one of the lowest uh, Mm -hmm. terms of benefits to employees. And it becomes the worker, injured worker, versus insurance companies and their lawyers. Who's going to win that battle most of the time? Yeah, not much of a great bargain. (laughs) <laughs> no, the bargain is no longer a bargain. But it wasn't a bargain in the first place, right? It was literally a way to lock you out of the right to get you know get made whole as a whole as you can, right? It was literally made to protect the the business from having to go to court. That's right. But the the bargain on the worker's side was okay. Um, we don't have to go to a jury anymore because juries could be unpredictable mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. And but we're going to get this predictable stream of benefits in exchange for not going to court. And when we get injured or killed or disabled on the job as a result of the work, and that was the bargain. And it wasn't a bad bargain, mm. uh, but it's a horrible bargain right now. You say if you are 50 separate, so each each state has its own organizations that manage yep. this, and they're, 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 not in, they're not beholden to any sort of particular standard of operation? Nope. Okay. No. They, it's, it, the individual, the state legislatures determine what the benefit is. Mm. Uh, the premiums are and what benefits would be gotcha. paid. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, and there needs to be one of the things I talk about at the end of the book in terms of what can we do. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a national workers' compensation uh, uh, system with a standardized uh, benefit schedule uh, for uh, for injuries. So if you get injured in Indiana and you get your arm cut off in a grinder, 
uh, it should be the same right, uh, uh, yeah. benefit as it would be in California, but it's not. Right. Or Iowa, which appears to be doing or a pretty Iowa. good job. <laughs> does yeah. a pretty good job. Well, so that's the. Uh, it's another point to make about Kroger. So Kroger, then uh, each Kroger, each Kroger type uh, grocery store in a different state has different standards that it it, it adheres to as well. So if uh, Lori Keene uh, would have been in uh, Iowa at a grocery store named for something having some other Kroger type name, uh, she would have been served better by workmen, the workers' compensation law there. She might have. Uh, certainly probably better than a, uh, she was in Indiana. Mm-hmm. I'm just, yeah, Indiana. I'm just pointing yeah. out from the, yeah. the little bit of data I looked at before, it looked like sure. Iowa was the highest in the in the nation in terms of best of sure. benefits. So, but that, uh, as you say, that uh, that makes it obviously an interesting uh, dilemma uh, because it is so fractured. It's part of how, uh, how businesses sort of get away from having to do th- certain things is because of the sort of divisive states' rights um, legislation that we have. And the other legal, and I won't bore you with all the, it's not boring. Uh, the it's fascinating. details yeah. of this uh, or get in too deeply into it, but I do talk about it in the book that um, if you get injured, if, if, if you're domiciled, you live in Indiana, mm-hmm. uh, let's say you live in Decatur, which is, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Terre Haute, which is near the Illinois border, mm-hmm. and you happen to be working in on a job in Illinois, uh, which work, workers' compensation system is going to pay for your benefits? And believe me, uh, the insurance company is going to say, uh, you know, you got injured in 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 in, the, in Illinois, but you live in Indiana, and maybe the company is headquartered in New York. I mean, there's just so many mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. opportunities for legal mischief right. that, in the end really disadvantage the worker and that's why a national system mm. has to be put in place. You know, what else I discovered is the the sort of uh, lengths and and costs that states and companies go to to actually end the benefit, right? So there's how many kinds of investigators go about trying to catch people at workmen's uh, workers' compensation uh, fraud or to to find ways in which to end so called uh, the so-called benefit. That's right, and this wasn't supposed to be, as I said earlier, a litigious system with lawyers. Mm-hmm. But in order to get your benefits, workers have to hire lawyers now. Unfortunately, right. I love lawyers. It's what I do. <laughs> but I, I want to do away with workers' compensation right. lawyers. Uh, my friends, uh, my brother's a workers' compensation lawyer. He would hate me to say <laughs> that, but he, he's frustrated too. But this is the shocking part of it to me. It's always the shocking part, right? How much money is spent to deny these things? And, and the sort of comparison of the, I think at the moment, the, there's one federal or state inspector for every 74,770 workers, uh, OSHA state inspectors. That's right. They would, uh, we have over 8 million work sites in this country covered by OSHA. And they say it would be, uh, take 145 years for, uh, each work site to be inspected once by an OSHA mm-hmm. inspector. Mm-hmm. There's so few of them. And there's even less today than there were when I wrote the book. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Jonathan Carmel, a labor lawyer in Chicago and author of Dying to Work death and injury in the American workplace, in which he details what is status quo when you go to work, the very real and avoidable chance that you'll be injured or even killed, even if you work in the local grocery store. I've got the ch-
We have some legislation that might be valuable and worthy. This is how we do all things. We have regulations on the books that could do work that we need it to, but it's underfunded. It's often like the, the penalties are ridiculously small as well. It's There's no enforcement uh, funding as well. So just like USDA, just like EPA, just like anything else, we we are stuck with a good law perhaps, but no nothing to do about it. We're stuck with uh, voluntary compliance mm, and mm. the fox in the hen house situation. <laughs> right. Let's uh, let's move. Uh, we're we're running long here, and I want to I want to get to a few of the things that you say. Sure. What can be done near the end of the book? One is don't elect Republicans. Um, <laughs> that might be number one, <laughs> which is uh, not funny, but we laugh because everything yeah. hurts these days. Don't elect Republic. There needs to be some OSHA reforms, as you said. It's coming up on uh, fifty, uh, and I think it had like one change in it. So we need some OSHA reform. You talked about enhanced civil penalties and criminal prosecutions as well. Well, the prosecution of Don Blankenship is a very interesting uh, story, and I actually spend a a number of pages talking about Mm -hmm. it. um, He was the uh, head of this major coal company that caused the deaths of uh, the last large mining uh, incident uh, causing the deaths of you know, dozens of miners, coal miners. And he was prosecuted by the U.S. attorney in, in West Virginia. And um, in the end of the day, the U.S. attorney was hamstrung by the laws that he could indict and prosecute Don Blankenship. And there were not the, the laws that they did convict him on only allowed for a one-year, uh, a maximum of one-year sentence prison, which he appealed to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals and lost that appeal, and he mm-hmm. tried every which way um, to get out of it, but he'd jail. Um, but it, it's, there are other prosecutions going on in this country, which is what I talk about. One of, one of the things I talk about at the end about what we can do mm-hmm. is that we have to encourage and resource local prosecutors to prosecute, you know, state prosecutors, county prosecutors, to prosecute uh, workplace uh uh, injuries and workplace deaths and hold employers criminally liable for their deaths where, where the facts bear that out. Yeah. Criminal liability is, it seems to me, far more important. Right. OSHA has a criminal, uh, does have some criminal liability, and I talk about that as well in the book, that the referrals to the Department of Justice over the last 50 years have been negligible. Hmm. Uh, and there's been very, very, very few prosecutions uh, uh, under OSHA. Hmm. But there are state and local prosecutors that are actively now uh, investing resources in, in protecting workers in their jurisdictions. And I write about prosecutions in New York City uh, as well as Los Angeles. And these are important. They send messages to employers that you've got to take care of your workers, make, keep them health, uh, keep them safe if you don't. Uh, and you've done something criminally liable, we're coming after you. Um, so there are obviously places where there are opportunities to prosecute these kinds of things based on municipal ordinances and policies or laws, as well as state laws? Yeah, I mean, criminal laws, you know, right. for, you know, murder. So, so uh, yeah, you can frame homicide. it that way. Okay, so. That's, that's what, they're not inventing gotcha, gotcha, new laws, gotcha. and there may be some, uh, some, you know, criminal laws that are, more tailored to workplace uh, uh, deaths and injuries, but uh, the, the ones I talk about in the book were, were traditional criminal 
Mm-hmm. Uh, statues. Mm, okay. Well, that's that's good to know. I had no clue about that. So, uh, in, in a in a just world, maybe Don Blankenship's on on trial for twenty nine murders. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. But it was yeah. Because there were 29 coal miners. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, so one other thing before we head out, you do talk about also, um, and one thing that I think is interesting is the outsourcing of work generally has, has changed also the way in which people are responsible for labor and who uh, labor accidents or uh, – I use the word again, sorry um, – uh, that – there are there are ways in which we're no longer responsible for these things, and this is through contracting. Leading into this question about who's responsible, mm. and that's a debate that's going on across the labor field, not just in the health and safety space, but uh, with the uh, you know with with more and more employers these days relying on uh, outside employment agents to get their workers uh, their. They do that in order to avoid the responsibility of uh, of being their employer. Because right. b- being their employer carries with it all sorts of responsibilities, including workers' compensation benefits mm-hmm. and and other other uh, responsibilities. So that's a debate that's just raging right now. Mm. Who is the employer? And are these workers are you know are they uh, if a lot of them are being class- misclassified as independent contractors, right. and they're nobody's employer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're not protected. Employer. Yeah, not protected. They're not protected. By right, right, right. And uh, and that's a debate again, vastly underreported debate that affects everybody. That's our show. We'll close with Frankly, Mr. Shankly by the Smiths off of The Queen is Dead from 1986. Thanks to Jonathan Carmel for joining us today to share with us the surprising facts that no workplace is safe and even the local grocery store is stocked with death traps. Carmel's revealing look at workplace non-safety is Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace, published by Cornell University Press. Thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Editing assistance comes from Jim Thrasher. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHP. Fame, fame, fatal fame. It can play hideous tricks on the brain. But still I'd rather be famous than righteous or holy. Any day, any day, any day. But sometimes I feel more fulfilled Making Christmas cards with the mentally ill I want to live and I want to love I want to catch something that I might be ashamed of Frankly, Mr. Shankly, this position I...